We hear again this week how God has given every one of us as Christians amazing freedom, but that freedom isn't freedom to do as much as we want or just to push the license as far as we can go. That freedom is given to us by God to use to build others up in love. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, January 29th, 2012. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'm really excited about where we're at today. So we've been spending some time going through Corinthians. We're going to spend... Sorry, I'm going to move these. I was going to promise the kids Tic Tacs. Um, I don't want to sound like a maraca as I move back and forth on the stage. Um, uh, we're spending some time in Corinthians. I'm really excited about it because I think you're starting to get a flavor for what it means to be a Christian, at least at that time. So the Apostle Paul writes to us, as scripture does, here's what it means to be a Christian. And we talked about that. It means worship. It means growing in God's word. It means serving others. But sometimes this gets a little more specific, which it does in Corinthians. So we got a chance to talk about sexual immorality and what does that mean? Um, Your body, as we said, is not made for this. Your body is made for the Lord. So we talked about that. Um, Just last week, we got a chance to um, look again and talk about relationships. As the people had questions for the Apostle Paul, they would say, okay, now that I'm a Christian, do I stay married? Um, do I stay single? Do I, what happens if my spouse believes and I don't? But remember the summary of these whole things. So he gives his advice on it, but then his summary is simply this. Listen, the time is short, and make sure your priorities are in order. Make sure the number one thing you're worried about or you're concerned about in this life is your relationship with Jesus. Otherwise, uh, if you're kind of mixing those things, we've got a problem. So now we go to chapter 8, and he's talking about the freedom that we have in Christ and how do we use that. So I'm going to show you one big word again. I I was going to promise I wasn't going to show it again, but here's adiapra. It's the Greek word to describe things that say we are free to do them uh, or not. So if you find things in the Bible, some are commanded, some are forbidden, and then other things it doesn't say anything about. So let's, real easy examples, you shall not murder. That's in the Bible, that's forbidden. That's not like an option. Or love your neighbor as yourself. You wish it said sometimes, like, except for Carl, but it doesn't. You know, it says love your neighbor, so you're like, okay, I have to do this. This is not optional. And some things are um, commanded. So that was a command. Some of those are forbidden. Other things in Scripture we wish it said something about, but it doesn't always say something about. So that's what we're going to run in today. Um, When we have Christian freedom to make a choice, how do we decide what we do? What's some of the determining factors to determine what we do? So that's what we're going to be covering, and it's in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. So you can look inside your service folder. Christian freedom. Um, If you have freedom to do something, does that mean you should do it all the time? This is the question really of the day, what we're trying to figure out. If you're free to do something, should you do it all the time? I Think about when I was a kid. If you get the super pass, for example, and you're a skier, you get the super pass, you can go anytime, no blackout dates. Does that mean you should ski every day? No, only on powder days. I mean, that's how we figure this out, right? You're not going to waste your time when there's no snow. So, so, but you do have freedom, but then you want to get your money's worth. This would be like my worst nightmare. Has anyone gone to like a Six Flags Great America? This is, what, I, I don't know if that's the official title. Elitch Gardens, I think, is a Six Flags, isn't it? It's like a Four Flags, if you've ever been to a Six Flags. We had one called Enchanted Village in Washington. I think that was like a half flag. I don't know what that thing was. 
yeah, not super awesome. So in this realm, they have these really cool deals, and they try and lure you in because they know you unlikely you're going to come again. So they say, you should buy the pass. And you can get the pass for like twice as much as the entrance fee. So you're like, maybe this is what I should do. This would have been my worst nightmare as a kid. We would beg my dad. He's like, Dad, please, we should get this pass. What a good deal it is. But my dad is cheap. So that means I think every weekend we would have trucked down to Gurney, Illinois to go enjoy the rides, and it would have been like the worst thing ever. So is it like this with Christianity? You are free to do certain things. So do you live it up and you make sure you do these and use these freedoms as much as possible? Or is there some restraint involved? So this is the question we're talking about, and specifically we're talking about food that is sacrificed to idols. And that sounds like an odd thing because we don't have such a thing, but I'm going to apply it a little bit later to something that connects. So imagine this scenario. You live in Corinth, and you live in Corinth, and your friend invites you to this um, party. He says, hey, it's next Friday, 6.30. We're going to do some life together, hang out, and um, it's going to be at the Apollonia Temple Grounds, and we're going to sacrifice a bull, and you know the blood's going to fall off, and then it first gets on us, and we'll be strong like bull because the God is going to enter us. And hey, if you're not that close, don't worry. Because if you eat the food sacrificed to the idol, you also can be strong like bull and have it course through your veins. Now, as a Christian who used to be uh, a follower of uh, Apollo, you'd say, like, wait a second. I don't think I'm going to go to this pagan sacrifice. That one's pretty easy, right? Easy? Okay, good. Good. So that one's really easy. However, the meat from these sacrifices, because this is going on all the time, some went to the person who sacrificed it, some went to like the priests, and then some was sold on the open market. So if you have extra meat, this is what went in. The guys would get it at a discount, and they'd start selling it at the market. So you go to King Supers, you don't always know, is this meat sacrificed to an idol or not? Let's step back one more sec and, and talk about something else as we come back to it. Um, sometimes they give you beautiful diagrams, and sometimes I just take a Sharpie and put it on paper. I'll let you determine which one this is. And if you can't tell the difference, it's going to be Sharpie and paper from now on, because the other ones take way longer. Okay, so when we talk about conscience, this is just how it talks about, it talks about a weaker brother. It talks about a stronger brother. Um, I, I don't know if those are the greatest terms. I wish it would say something like mature conscience or in tune conscience, something like this but it doesn't. So, so when scripture uses words like this, we will too. God's will is a, that's supposed to be a straight arrow. Okay, so God's will is the arrow on the bottom. You can see this wonderful drawing. It's straight away, pretty easily. As you have a strong conscience, which means you're aware of what is going on in the world, um, I would like to think as a mature, maturing Christian, I would have an idea if you said an activity, I could tell you if it's scriptural or not. Hey, we're going to go do this. In my mind, if I say, boy, that doesn't seem right, I have a feeling that's going to be pretty in tune with what God's Word says. So that's a strong conscience. A strong conscience recognizes that God, things that God says are wrong are wrong. See how it's lining up? Things that God says are right are right. The other option is a weak conscience. Again, beautiful drawings. A weak conscience hears God's will, but because it's brand new, because it's been kind of mushed around by the world and isn't familiar with what God's Word says, isn't going to necessarily, when you feel bad about something or you feel good about something, it's not necessarily lining up with what God thinks. So if you're new to the Christian faith, you can say, hey, I think that's cool, let's go do it, but that might not line up with God's will. See how that's kind of going off track? Once in a while it's perfect, but then a lot of times um, it's not. So what happens? Things that are right, you may think, 
are wrong, and things that are wrong you may think are right. So when Paul writes to the people at Corinth, that as we have here, he's writing to some people who have um, a stronger conscience. So we're going to get to that. You guys know enough, and this is where we're getting at, you guys know enough of some of the situation or some of the issues involved if you're going to go to a pagan um, sacrifice. So we said, no, we're not going to do that. But can you cook and eat food uh, sacrificed to an idol at your house? I'm saying you guys have strong consciences. Is it okay if someone sacrifices meat to an idol to eat that meat? Well, sure, that's not a big deal. Because is the idol anything? No, it'd be like sacrificing it to this post. It doesn't really mean anything. Yes, I can eat that meat. So we know that this is okay. So we're asking Paul, hey, is this okay? Or do I have to give up meat entirely? Which is kind of a big deal, I think. I, I think it's a big deal. It's not like God's asking you to give up circus peanuts or like a spam or something like that. Yeah, if God said, hey, from now on, you're not allowed to eat circus peanuts, I'd say, dear Lord, for the sake of the kingdom, I will start 25 years ago. That's I retroactively had decided not to eat circus peanuts. That's how much I love you, Lord. But no, God is saying, uh, the question is, do we have to stop eating steak? Whew. Steak's pretty good. So you can imagine, this is like, you can, when the letter got in, I bet they were ready to rip it open because they sent this to Paul. Hey, can we eat this meat sacrificed to idols? And they're like, the letter's here. We've got to find out if we can eat ribeye. You know, like, yeah, 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 yeah sexual emergency. Yes, we can eat steak. But there's another issue involved. If um, the question is, can we eat steak or not? We said, yes, we can. We're going to cover that in a second. Now, this also means, can we be involved in social activities that are going to go on? Your friend who's not a Christian invites you over. You're in Corinth still. And what are they going to be serving on the buffet table? Meat that's sacrificed to idols. So the question is, do I just totally avoid this situation? Is that the best situation to do it? This is something that's been plaguing Christians for a while. Um, it used to be with the Puritans or Methodists. Have you heard of that term? They said, we don't want to be contaminated by um, having any contact with drunkenness, so we're not going to ever go to the pub, ever. We're not going to go to the bar at all, which is a pretty easy way. If you never drink alcohol, it's pretty difficult to get drunk. I'm pretty sure of that. So they, they said, we're going to totally avoid it altogether. The idea was, we're going to be a witness to the people who are in the pubs and need to hear about Jesus, but we're just not going to bother because we're saying we're not going to get near it. We don't want to be contaminated. However, how are the people who go to the bars ever going to learn about Jesus if you never hang out with them? Hmm. This gets a little trickier, doesn't it? So uh, instead of having this good idea that Christians are doing great, instead they were seen as judgmental. You can imagine that. Um, they're seen as judgmental. They're not seen as people who know how to have a good time without the excess of alcohol, like ordinary people. Instead, they're seen as people who just said, listen, if you're going to have a good time, you're a sinner. So how do you think that helped in the witnessing relationship? Made it pretty difficult. So you can see how this is starting to tangle up a little bit. If they weren't positive they could eat meat sacrificed for idols, A, they either have to give up steak, which doesn't sound very cool, or B, they have to avoid like all social situations where they'd be involved where this meat is being sacrificed, and you're like, oh, great. So Paul has an answer, as he does. He's a theologian, and he starts to talk to the people. This is in... Um, here's his response. So now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. We'll talk about that. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol... I'm going to skip back. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from, for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So what is this point? He's saying, let's just get this out of the way. You can eat food sacrificed to an idol because an idol is nothing. It doesn't mean anything at all. But what is the issue? The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. So even if you know something and you know that you can eat this meat, does that mean you're going about it the best way you can? Has anyone read any Harvey McKay books? Harvey McKay does like sales books and he's kind of over the top and I'm listening to his book now. Someone recommended it to me that the current book is, I'm not super excited about this, um, The McKay MBA of Selling in the Real World. So it was recommended to me, I'm listening to it, it's kind of interesting, um, kind of interesting, but I got this one section that was really interesting. These two psychologists did a test, he was talking about arrogance, these two psychologists did a test and in this test, they asked people to do various things like logic and various questions. And they filled it out. And without sharing the results with them, they said, how do you think you did? So how do you think most people would judge themselves um, about where they thought they did, better than they thought they did, or worse than they thought they did? I and mean, then they actually did. What's your guess? Worse, about the right, or better? We're Germans, so some of us are going, yeah, yeah probably most would lowball it. But no, they, no, not false humility. Most people didn't even have a clue where they were at. Most people, they said, overwhelmingly felt they had done better. And here's the best part which you've observed in life. The people who did the worst thought they did the best. And how, which was totally funny to me because how many job situations have you been in when someone's spouting off about all they know and about how they just ripped something up because they were so good at it and you're looking at them going, are we looking at the same project? Are we talking about the same deal? Are we talking about the same conversation? You know, because I was there. And um, you've run into that again and again and again. You know what? This happens in Christianity. Someone knows enough knowledge to know, hey, I'm cool to eat this meat sacrificed by idols. I can live it up, do whatever I want. And Paul says, whoa, 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 back off. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. So just the knowledge part of it isn't enough. Because knowledge puffs up. We get the same term. They say puff up. Um, we get the same term like uh, that person's got a big head, right, if they know too much. So what is the other situation we have to think about as you talk about living and doing and uh, participating in Adiaphra? Other people. I'm going to tell you a story, which this is going to be strange. I heard it at a conference. So I went to a, a youth rally and the pastor who was talking. I don't actually believe the story. So I probably shouldn't repeat it, but it does apply here. Has anyone seen the movie Hustle and Flow? I'm not going to look because you shouldn't raise your hand. It's not a very good movie. Okay, so this is not a movie you should see. Um, it's about a rapper, and I think it involves uh, a lot of drugs and things like that. I've never seen it. However, 6-3 Mafia, or 3-6 Mafia, wrote a song called It's Hard Out There Being a Pimp. So is anyone familiar with this song? It's actually a pretty popular song. And this is why you should know it. If you watch the... <laughs> 
they're like, I can't believe he's saying this. I can't actually believe I'm saying this. Um, if you watch the Academy Awards, they won an Oscar. The 6-3 Mafia, I think, 3-6 Mafia won an Oscar for their song, It's Hard Out There Being a Pimp, as best song in a movie. And the reason I remember this is because, A, I'll tell you the refrain, uh, and B, it was like three different awards later, they could you could still hear the band or the group yelling because they were so pumped that they had just won. And they, that's how you accept an award. Like most people are like, yeah, I'd like to thank everyone. These guys were jumping up and down. They're high-fiving. They're hugging each other. Two different awards later, they're still screaming, and I remember it, because the announcer goes, now that's how you accept an award. Because these guys were, you could still hear them off in the distance. Well, anyway, the refrain of this song, and again, we're glad kids go up to rock kids. The refrain of this song is, it's hard out there being a pimp. Um, making money to pay the rent. I mean, that's part of this refrain. And this pastor was saying he was at his health club working out, and it, it's kind of believable if you knew him. So he was talking about how he just was singing this refrain. It was a popular song, the radio version. I don't know what the other one's like. I have no idea. But the radio version was a popular song for a while. So he's singing the refrain of this while he's doing his workout and things like that. And this woman he had been trying to witness to starts crying because he had seen her in the club a lot. She was from Croatia, I think starts crying, or Latvia it was, and he's like, what, what, what's the deal? You know, he pulls off his headphones, and she says, well, I used to be a prostitute, and to hear you say those words was devastating. Do I believe this story? I don't know, but what other factor is involved? Is it, in your Christian freedom, can you sing that song? It, I, I guess. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know on that one. I mean, like the conscious, I, I don't know if you should be, I know you shouldn't be singing that song. Can you in your Christian freedom sing that song? Possibly. But who else is affected besides you? The people that are around you. Same thing is true um, if you ever went to like the horse track or something. that We had a horse track by us. There was a guy I talked to quite a bit. Um, we were decent friends. He was, he ran all the sports programs in the city. We always had teams, so I'd talk to him and complain about rules and things like that. So Scott and I were good friends. We talked fairly often. I ran into him at the horse track. So we had different objectives, though, when we went to the horse track. I went there twice. I would go on the free day with my kids, and I would give them $2 to gamble, because I like to start gambling early. And so I'd give them $2. I'd give them $2. They could pick whatever horse they wanted, and I would go illegally make the bet for them. And so they'd be all ready. They made like 30 cents, and I'd say, listen, you, you a lot of risk to make not too much money. But the coolest part is you could go all the way down by the track if you've ever done it. And those courses are incredible. As they go around this bend, you're right on the rail and they're like from here to that black part, just storming by. I don't know how fast they go, like 30 or 40 miles an hour, probably 35 miles an hour. They just go flying by. The kids thought it was awesome and I'd tell them what, they'd only pick it by like the pink checks. They're like, I want that one. So then <laughs> we'd all go crazy. So I run into my friend Scott at the horse track and I say different objectives because I could care less what race is going on. It doesn't matter to me at all. The kids were picking it because the horse is white or something like that. Scott was pretty serious, like real serious, like didn't want to talk. He's like, oh, hey. And he's got this whole book with numbers and this whole deal. Now, I'm not making an assessment about Scott, but is it possible that he could be in the throes of addiction for gambling? I think it's possible. So say he frees himself from that. He didn't go to our church, or I don't think he went to any church. But so say he frees himself from that through God's grace. He now understands uh, who Christ is, that this is probably ill use of his money, what it's done to his family, what it's done to his life, and he's been connected by that. What happens if the next time we get together, I'm like, you know what we should do? Let's hit the track. 
Now, can I do that? Yes. Is that a good idea for someone who has just freed themselves from this addiction? No. So what is the point that we get into Corinthians? Even though you can do a whole lot of things, and we'll talk about some specific examples, that doesn't mean you should do it. So here's how Paul says it. But not everyone knows this. So just because you know certain things, dilemma number one is not everybody knows the things you know. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as being sacrificed to an idol. And since their consciences are weak, that's where that term comes from, are not totally in line with God's will, it's defiled. They feel terrible at this. They feel like I am worshiping an idol and, and like somehow this is going inside my being and everything that goes along with it. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat. And no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their conscience, their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, you, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. The issue, um, again, isn't whether you can do it or not. We've already determined you can. The issue isn't whether or not that this is um, a, a good idea for you personally. The issue is, how does this affect other people? So what is the closest that we can come up with to things that might be associated to like falling or worship, uh, things that have been sacrificed to idols? So I'll give you some examples. Um, alcohol. So just think in your brain, how do I handle or how do you handle alcohol? All these things is on some degree within limited things. Um, how do you handle drugs? How do you handle uh, Sunday sports? And I think a bigger issue in our world is youth sports now. It used to be um, sports weren't on Sunday, but I think that's just as big an issue. How do you handle those things? How do you handle skiing on the weekend? How do you handle um, gambling? We talked about that. How do you handle your entertainment choices? So we wrestle with these. Are you, in a limited degree, able to enjoy or participate in these things? Yeah, you are. But is this always the best thing for my brother or sister? Now, obviously, if it goes against the Ten Commandments, it's illegal drugs. I'm not saying, you know, that's cool or something like that. I'll give you an example about drugs. Say you, uh, your spouse is major surgery, gets on Vicodin, has problems with addiction with Vicodin. You now have an injury. Do you think it's a good idea to bring, after they've freed themselves from that, to bring a Vicodin into the house? I think that's not a great idea. So we go through all these examples. Can you drink alcohol? Well, sure. But can you also drink alcohol to excess? Sure. What happens if you're hanging out with someone who's an, formerly an alcoholic or alcoholic, they say, all the time? Is it a good idea for me to serve up alcohol? Is it possible they could be emboldened by your behavior? Is it possible that the entertainment choices I make as a pastor, the choices I make with alcohol, the choices I make with gambling, the choices I make with all these things can embolden someone who doesn't fully understand the freedom you have in Christ 
to do things that they feel they shouldn't be doing. And in fact, could lead them away from Jesus. I think real possible. So what would we say are some things that you should keep in mind? I wrote three things. Number one, Will this behavior hinder or help my relationship with God? That's really number one. And if you can't get past this, you're saying, okay, I'm going to go um, participate in something, or maybe it's indifferent. I'm going to have a beer. Does that hinder or help my relationship with God? I'd say that's probably indifferent. Okay? Does this behavior, will this behavior cause a weaker Christian to stumble? So is it possible that for me to exercise the freedom I have, I'm going to cause someone else to fall away from God? So we've got two things now. The third thing is, will this behavior uh, build others up? Because remember it says, knowledge puffs up, but what does love do? It builds people up. And I think the best example I can think of across the world would be the freedom that God had. Think of the freedom that God had. God could do anything he wanted. God could make any choice he wanted. God could live the way he wanted, but what did God say? You know what? In spite of that, I'm going to lay my freedom aside. In spite of that, I'm going to set my freedoms aside. So the power I know, I'm going to lay aside. The life I know, I'm going to lay aside. The comfort I know, I'm going to lay aside, even though I'm free to be able to enjoy all these things. And why does God want to do that? Because it helps his relationship with God. I mean, you can almost see it. This does not cause someone else to stumble. Instead, it builds us up. And how does it build us up? Because of his sacrifice, he takes our sins away so that we know what real freedom is. Our goal in life isn't to try and stretch and do the wildest things that we can do. Our goal in life is to say, how can I get closer to God? And how can I help other people get closer to God? That's a sign of Christian maturity. Um, think about when you got invited to a party or something when you were a kid, and like your aunt, it was always your aunt, who would serve, like, cauliflower. And cauliflower better be good for me because I eat it now because it's good for me. If I find out it's bad for me, I'm going to be ticked because cauliflower is awful. I mean, no matter how you cook it, and people are, it's not bad if you put, like, Velveeta on it and cheese and bacon. I'm like, well, yeah, because you're eating cheese and bacon with some cauliflower. That doesn't really count. But the same thing, it better be good. So you go as a kid, and you should see that. It's like your worst nightmare, the big old scoop, and it's like your grandma-sized scoop or your aunt-sized scoop, and they whip it up, and they drop it on your plate, and you're like, oh, no. And you know your eyes are darting at your mom, and your mom's going like... <laughs> and just there, you're like, I have to eat it. And the reward is only jello. You're like, oh, jello's not even that good. Is it worth it? You know, <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll just push this one out. I'll just pass by dessert this day. Um, but maybe it's something really good. So you just suffer through this. And you eat it as a kid, and you hate it. And you make a big scene, and every bite, you're like, Ugh. you know, you've, you've all been there, and your parents are kicking you under the table. like, <laughs> um, Or maybe you haven't. You're mature. But as an adult, is that how you act when someone serves up cauliflower? If you guys serve up cauliflower when I come over, you're dead. <laughs> this is what's going to happen. I know it. But, all right, so you serve this up. As an adult, what do you do? You say, this is delicious, and you eat it all up, right? You pass by the freedom you have to say, I'm not interested in this, in order for the sake of the host. And I think it's like that as you walk around as a Christian. You've got freedom to say yes and no to all you want, even the things that you don't like. But you say, you make a decision that says, this is going to help my relationship with God or someone else. This is going to keep someone from stumbling. And ultimately, uh, this behavior is going to build someone else up because they see what I'm doing and they recognize what that means. Make sense?
I'm excited. So next week, uh, we're going to be again in Corinthians, talking about our Savior as we always do each week, and talking about the Apostle Paul's advice to those group of people. Amen.